X-Ray. And welcome to the Beervana Podcast. Hi, Jeff. Hey, Patrick. Uh, we are back under the clouds and rain of typical Portland November. Well, December now. Yeah, December. We're into December, man. Yeah. <laughs> but that's why I was confused, because it's actually been kind of nice. It's been uh, sunny and uh, cold, but quite uh, bright and cheery. And now it's dreary, now small, it's, perfect. Yeah, it is. It's, it's put me in the mood. <laughs> it, it's been weird. I mean, we've had these dry, sunny days uh, getting up to 50 degrees. And, you know, Portlanders should really love that. But it sets off my spidey senses. It it's off-putting me, for us old folks. Who, yeah, it's 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 the global we, warming. We've become feels, those people. I was like, man, in the old days. Yeah. It yeah. would just always be raining. Now it's terrible. The traffic's terrible because of the rain and... Um, it's much less pleasant, and I'm so much happier. Yes, exactly. <laughs> it's like, well, thank goodness. Normalcy has returned. Anyway, we join you nearly live from the studios here at X-Ray FM in the Falcon Art Building in beautiful North Portland, which is beautiful but far when it's raining and traffic's terrible. And Yeah. But here we are. Here we are. Uh, we had in mind that we might, uh, Simon and I might actually ride our bikes today, but then we ended up not. Yeah, you quickly threw that away. <laughs> well, it wasn't so much the ride here. It was the ride back in the pitch dark in rush hour with lots of rain. It just right. didn't seem like so great. Uh, so, Jeff, you are Jeff Falworth. You've written books. Among those books are The Beer Bible and The Widmer Way. Yeah, and I'm working on the second edition of The Beer Bible, and I've been deep into that. So I've been... Uh, Whenever you write, it's it, the book writing process is interesting because right now I'm writing a book that no one uh, is participating with. You know, I'm doing it all on my own, so right. I'm really it's just full in my mind all the time. And right. it'll be it'll be a year after I'm done with it. It'll go out. <laughs> then in the people world. start asking you questions like, "Hey," and they're like, "Oh, yeah, I can't remember." Yeah, now. I have no idea. <laughs> the book will come out, and people will be it will feel fresh and new to them, and to me, it'll be a, you know a year or more out of date. So it's it's weird. It's but anyway, I'm. Uh, is that going well though? It is going really well. Uh, I, I'm going back through the book and updating chapters and adding new chapters and rearranging chapters. And nice. so I was just now looking at the, um, I, I was doing the chapter on Abbey Ales. Mm -hmm. And since I wrote that book, uh, there have been, so when I wrote that book, there, there were the classic, uh, seven, six or seven breweries in Belgium that were Abbey breweries, Trappist breweries. Right. And since that time. Uh, 14 breweries, Abbey breweries have opened up and they're not all Trappist though. I think half of them are Trappist, but there's Cistercians and Benedictines and one at Norbertine, uh, Abbey, which I only learned about today, uh, through the Twitters, Wow. um, which had opened up, uh, it opened, actually they had their opening while I was in Belgium in September. So is this all Belgians or just worldwide? No, that was, uh, they're all, it's worldwide. Yeah. The, 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 the one in Belgium that was the Norbertine one that opened while I was there is the only Belgian. So okay. the others are right. in the United States and Austria and wow, that's amazing. Poland and yeah, all over the place. It that's, is cool. Yeah. So, and why do you think? Uh, I think a, a few reasons. Uh, for one thing, they're mostly in the Benedictine line and the Benedictine monks have this rule of, or, or the, the rule of St. Benedict, which requires that they uh, are self-sufficient. Right. We talked about that when we talked about Mount Angel. Right. And uh, it it turns out that uh, beer sells well. Right. I was going to say, so, there's not a whole lot of other stuff <laughs> they can do these days. Yeah. <laughs> that, that really helps. Um, but I think the more important part for, for many of these monks is that they 
feel, and we, we heard this when we talked to Father Martin at uh, Mount Angel, that it is one of the few products that will bring people to the Abbey. And many of these uh, Catholic right. orders are in real trouble trying to recruit people and get people engaged in what right. they're doing. So they see it as a part of their mission. Community builder. Yeah. So uh, I think they have, you know, these monks talk just like brewers talk. Right. And so uh, I think the ones with breweries said, yeah, this is a great thing for us. Maybe you should consider it. Oh, so, interesting. Yeah. So is the uh, is the project process this time less daunting than previous because you have the the text there that you're just updating yeah way 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 different it's not <laughs> even really imagine. like writing a book there periodically i'm writing a chapter but right. uh that's pretty easy so yeah it's it's actually the most pleasant book writing experience i've had yeah when Those i wrote were... my textbook which i only recently it was like a five-year odyssey because there wasn't really any gun to my head uh, it just became such a burden around my neck and, and the thought of just another chapter and another chapter and another chapter was, but I, but yeah, I think the, the thought of going back and revising it is not daunting at all, but. Yeah. I mean, this phew. book, it, <laughs> it's, it's big, super it's long. Thing. <laughs> I've forgotten so much. And for me, I have to, I have to go through and read every single paragraph because, uh, I'll put in something like, um, an, on, you know, an offhand reference to a contemporary number of breweries. That was contemporary in 2013 when I turned in the manuscript. Right. So that's got to be updated. So I got to read the whole thing, which has been really interesting because it's it's you know I'm I'm refreshing myself on all this this information that's in there, which as we've talked about a lot has leaked out of my old brain. So it's kind of cool. Is there anything now that in the process that you think, oi, I kind of messed that one up, or are you happy pretty much with the whole text? Not not a big not a big thing. There are definitely uh, some some things I'm, I've learned since then. Right. I, I think it was, uh, you know, I, I had the best data available at the time and now I have better data. So I've updated that stuff. Cool. Uh, there are a few things where I misunderstood a process or, you know, little tweaks here and there, but right. I would say not, not giant given how wide the scope is. I, I'm pretty happy with it. I look forward to it. <clears throat> yeah. So, uh, yeah. You, which I, would suggest that you would read it. And I know that's a lie. <laughs> <laughs> um, I've read, Parts of the other one, yeah. And I flipped through most of it. Yeah, flipped through. I, I that I I believe you have flipped through it. <laughs> Simon's laughing. Simon also gave me a book that I'm. I've told him I'm going to read too. Uh, yeah, it's hard because I have got lots of things to read all the time. <sighs> Simon's here in the I studio gotta, with us, keeping his gotta, dad honest. I got to prioritize. Uh, so I just completed my uh, apparently every two year service of jury duty, and I know that you're going to do it next week. That's right. Uh, we had two Mondays in a row. It's almost as if they knew that too, we were friends. That's too bad, because that would have made it less painful to do it. But what annoys me is that uh, I did it almost exactly two years ago, and as soon as I'm, I'm eligible again, I got called, and my wife's never done it. Oh, that's interesting. So I don't like the system. I think that you, they, shouldn't, they should keep calling people until everybody has been called, and then they start going around again. It's purely random, I think, because I my wife, by contrast, gets called all the time. So, um, yeah. I know. Yeah. It's selection with replacement. They put you right back in the pool as soon as you're ready. And then you, you might have been called two years ago. Someone might have been called 20 years ago. It doesn't matter. Yep. E equal probabilities. I think that's poor public policy. <laughs> uh, given uh, where public policy is in the United States, that is a No, I think this should be a, a priority. small quibble. <laughs> this should be a priority. <laughs> Oh, but I, I lucked out. I didn't ever, I never got called to be on a jury and they let us out early because there were no more trials to be juried. They had to run you out of the 
So if they thank- had called you up, they would have eliminated you immediately. You would have. Oh, I was said. ready. Yeah, I was ready to make myself a very undesirable <laughs> juror. I don't want to. I left wing. I'm a politician. Really, I left wing really economist. Get him out of here. I really support our our rights, and I I support the whole idea of trial by jury. Yeah, as long as I don't have to participate. <laughs> I know. I think it's a great system. I know we're. Uh, yeah. All right. We should we should probably talk about beer at some point. That's true. Uh, it's been a little while. We we had a we had a little uh, fallow period there, so it's we had to get caught up. So now we have, and and we can get down to business. I did sneak out. I had my the first day I had lunch, and I snuck out and. Uh, my beloved Arsenal was playing, so I went and watched the Arsenal game at a bar, had a beer, probably wasn't supposed to. Today? No. Oh. On Monday when I was on jury duty. Oh, I'm saying in the middle of my jury duty. Oh, I was wow. Able to sneak out. So there was a beer themed. Nice. Yeah. I had a nice Pilsner. Wow. Watched, All right. Watched Arsenal win finally, so that was good. All right. So before we get started, we'd like to thank Freem Family Brewers for sponsoring this episode of the Beer Fauna Podcast. You can find them in Hood River, Oregon, and at freembeer.com. That's P-R-I-E-M-B-E-E-R dot C-O-M. You misspelled that. It's P-F-R-I-E-M. What did I say? I, I know I was halfway through it and I was like, I feel like I messed this up. <laughs> uh, yeah, you went P-R. Let's try that again. At freembeer.com. P-F-R, yeah, you're right. I didn't do the F. See, it's silent. <laughs> that it, I I did say it, but it, I said it silently. Yeah, but then that would that'd be preem beer. Which is all, you just <laughs> okay. Long term digging, digging deeper. P f r i e m b e e r dot com. Whew. Okay. Sorry, folks. Uh, yeah, that's good beer. They didn't have that at the bar that I was at, unfortunately. Yeah. Uh, but they I had a nice um, von Ebert Pilsner. Oh, good. That's there interesting. You go. Yeah. Uh, which was nice. All right. So. In the coming weeks, we're going to have guests to guide us through the complexity of pairing beer with cuisine. But before we do that, we thought it would be useful to examine flavor itself. When we taste a beer and our brain tells us chocolate or grapefruit, what's happening? Flavor is a composite of what our bodies tell us, our hardware, so to speak, and what our brains do in synthesizing that information into meaning, our software. We'll look at, excuse me, we'll look at that today, but first, but first then the news, but first then but first <laughs> okay, i'm gonna do it your way we'll look at that today but first then the news you you forget how how much <laughs> of a pain in the ass it is to put these together and you mock me i'm gonna make you do well, one 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 so, one just so you can remember so it's a script and i think i did a decent job but you have got like hyphens and 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 inverted commas and commas and a lot of, a lot of stuff going on here i'm I a writer to, man that was you that's hard stuff i'm a writer man i gotta write <laughs> Don't yeah. shackle me. See, this is what happens when you sit around writing a book too much. Now you're getting all this complex grammar and <laughs> I've got to figure out like where the pauses are and what the emphasis is and yeah. All right. Okay, here we go. Ready? Yeah. We'll look at that today, but first, the news. Let's start with what is possibly the biggest news of the year. The announcement that an unknown two-year-old Illinois brewery will make that will make 600 barrels of beer this year has just purchased Ballast Point from Constellation Brands. That's the one billion dollar Ballast Point, <laughs> right? Sold for a billion dollar billion dollars back in 2015. Uh, the brewery is called Kings and Convicts, named for its British and Australian owners. They put together a private group of investors and will take ownership of most of the breweries and pubs and all the branding, beers, and intellectual property of Ballast Point. That is kind of stunning. By the way, uh, I did a little, I think like most people, probably Googled the 
the kings and convicts. And for a while, I think that crashed their website. Yeah, the whole first day. For but like there's something to do hours. with bowling or something like that. Or yeah, know, yeah, man, it's if like it, bowling and beer, isn't that? That's their big thing. So it, may, maybe they're going to convert all the ballast point to bowling alleys or something. It's actually golfing, but um, oh, golfing, not yeah. bowling. Okay, golfing and beer. <laughs> <laughs> that's right, golf simulators. That was yeah, that's uh, interesting business model yeah it is but maybe it's more successful than the ballast point business model which is kind of tanking yeah hey by the way everybody says chicagoland now to refer to chicago uh, lancer uh chicago and the greater chicago area this place is like way far uh north of chicago um which i understand why you call it chicagoland so like milwaukee uh no not quite that far but it is closer (laughs) to the to the wisconsin state line than it is to soldier field as i noted uh, in my uh blog post about this which i mean yeah i i'm not saying it's not a suburb but it it ain't it ain't in chicago it's out there uh anyway but that's the nice part when when did chicagoland become popular is that like that term? Yeah, that term. I don't know. It was always there when I was growing up in Wisconsin. Okay. That's what I wanted to know. I wanted my Midwest man to land. let me know what was going on there. Yeah, I think it's legit. They're way out in Chicagoland. More <laughs> more land than Chicago. More land than Chicago. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's interesting. I talked to the guy. He seems very nice. They're since I think he's, you know, it's sincere. They really want to make a go of it. And at some seems- point, there won't be any real land in between Chicago and Milwaukee. It'll just be one big megalopolis. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe they're just like prepared for that. I think so. Some, someone's someone's got to have golf simulators somewhere in the boonies. It, <laughs> if you're going to have golf simulators, they're going to be in the boonies. They're not going to be in near Soldier Field. And okay, but let's talk Soldier about Ballast Point. So here's the yeah. here's the point. First, uh, I think this promotes my theory that because Ballast Point made a big splash, but they also were sort of convinced people that they should spend like $13 for a six pack of beer. Fifteen. $15. Anyway, yeah. to, they they priced above everybody else. Yep. They and, were very confident their product was And the was economist in me says that, you know, there's also changing taste too. But the economist in, economist in me says that that, more than anything else, was their death knell. There's just too much good beer out there and pricing matters. And you can kind of get away with it at first if you kind of have a hit, uh, a, uh, a hit beer and a hit brand and kind of... You can ride that for a little while, but it was never going to last. Yeah, it did seem destined to burn whatever kind of loyal loyalty and equity uh, people had, the connection, because they yeah. were feeling gouged, right? Like, yeah. you have a beer that I really like, and you're charging me a maximum price. Like, all these other companies have beers that I like, but they don't take their most popular beer and charge 50% more <laughs> yeah. uh, for a six-pack than everybody else. And I'll yeah. pay it for now. When it's the newest, latest, the hottest, like, you thing you got to have, then sure, fine. But uh, you got to have uh, an exit strategy there, and I'm not sure they did. Uh, but the other question is, if you're thinking about assets to buy, I mentioned in my little uh, tweet, no, I think actually it was a comment on your tweet, um, which I guess qualifies as a tweet of my own. So it that means I'm active on Twitter. Uh, that, that, that's known in the vernacular as a subtweet. Okay. So I subtweeted. Um, thank you for that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'll, remember, I'll try to remember that one. <laughs> uh, that once you lose your mojo as a, as a brewery, I think it's really hard to get back. And so here you have this brewery that's, that's on a super downward trend. Yeah, they were at 430,000 barrels at their peak and they're down to 200,000. So I, I kind of get that you get it as a, as a discount, but uh, to me, it's um, curious. Like, I'm not sure that's what I would be uh, uh, running towards unless it's all just about the properties and the, and the equipment and stuff and you start over with a new brand or something. Yeah. I don't know. Nobody knows. I, they, they haven't said anything, have they? 
they no. I mean, I think this happened very fast, and I talked to the the owner, the Australian, and oh, really? <clears throat> yeah, my sense is oh, well done, journalist. Why? Thank you. Um, okay, you know, I yeah. would you like to would you like to tell us what he said? Well, he, you know, it was he he didn't have anything to say. He just bought this thing, he, uh-huh. and he wouldn't. The question that everyone wanted to know is how much he paid, and he wouldn't say that. Yeah, well, uh, that makes sense. And then we were interested in who exactly was in his ownership group, and he wouldn't say that. So, did you ask him about but, plans, like what their plans are? Yeah, we asked about plan. I asked about plans, but it's so new. I don't think he even even were he to <laughs> have plans. I don't know that. You know, <laughs> this is all sounding slightly half baked, but that's okay. I hope I hope that he can uh, make a go of it. There is some chatter on the inner tubes and among industry personnel that the price was somewhere between 60 and 75 million dollars mm-hmm. uh which um you know relative to a billion is were every, exactly exactly very and it, small but it's that's a lot of money it's a lot of money but when you compare it to uh the price that most other companies have been selling for which is about a thousand per barrel so this would be worth about uh 200 million dollars like okay. uh, it, it's a it's a substantial uh discount yeah um the big question i think uh is whether these guys who have two years of brew pub experience (laughs) are going to be able to you know take this complex thing in a different state with a different brand and make a go of it so we'll see i you know i'm i'm rooting for them i I gotta tell you absolutely it's a i think there's i think some people were um a little bit uh, miffed just by the the hubris of it <laughs> and i feel like oh you know give it a shot guys well yeah and that's the thing like if it was just some kind of private equity uh concern that came in and took it people just wouldn't think too much about it just because it's some people who happen to have a small brewing business now yeah you know, doesn't make a big difference to me and besides if you're sitting in the middle of a chicago winter you might think san diego sounds pretty darn nice that was one thing that came out of it they are moving the headquarters to san diego which, uh, not surprisingly <laughs> especially if you're golfers which i suspect they might be yeah totally then it makes, makes a lot of sense all right yep. well i hope i hope they can make a go of it i'll be very interested to see whether they're just going to try and revive and resurrect ballast point or if you were taking my advice you might just think about rebranding and starting over but no way, man. Ballast, it's coming back. Yeah, well, you also, I mean, there's probably a lot of contracts that they've just, you know, they're intertwined with distribution contracts and stuff, so it's probably not so easy just to call it something else. No, I don't think so. All right, but fix that price point, make good beer, you'll be good. We'll check back in a year. Yeah. All right, uh, the Ballast Point News dovetails with an interesting finding brought to us by Bart Watson, the Brewers Association economist. Uh, that's a good Twitter to follow, by the way, if you're interested in the geeky economist stuff. Yeah, totally. He's He's got great stuff. Uh, he looked to see what percentage of closed brewery locations get a new brewery in that same location. Uh, he has to make some assumptions. It's not super accurate, but uh, the, the ballpark is probably pretty accurate. The number was surprisingly high, 22.8%. Breweries still have an unusually low rate of failure compared to typical businesses. And now it turns out that a quarter of those that do fail are enjoying a reincarnation. So I think the Oregon number was slightly higher. Yeah, not hugely higher, like but a little. 32% or something. Yeah, exactly, but a little bit higher. Yeah. Uh, so that's very interesting because one of the questions, especially if it's a small brewery, brew pub kind of location, you wonder, well, was that the problem? Was it the location was the problem or uh, were there other things going on? Um, I don't know. You think you, you think it's surprisingly high? I wasn't sure what to think when I saw him tweeting about it. I tried a little thought experiment with me. I was like, "What would I? What would I expect?" I well, I I was surprised. Um, yeah. 
Yeah, I don't. I, yeah, I don't know. You're right. <laughs> the surprise, the surprise is in the eye of the beholder. Yeah, I, this beholder was surprised. Right. Well, anecdotally, we have a few examples like the Commons Brewery that sold to Modern Times. Right. Uh, and now they occupy that space. That's right. And uh, Fatheads became Von, Von Ebert, Ebert, which you mentioned earlier. But that was a little bit different because the owners remained the same. It's just a branding. Speaking of branding. Well, yeah, it is and it isn't. Um, and I wonder, that's that's what made me think. I wonder, because what Bart did was he looked at uh, breweries that had, had gone out of business, which is to say that the brand has gone away. Right. And and, and then and then you have a new brand and he looked at- That one probably counted, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, and then he would look at the, he just looked at the addresses. And yeah. um, in that case, I think that would be one of the ones. So here's why I think it's not terribly surprising, just because I'm so, it's kind of like a restaurant that, you know, the restaurant space opens up as another restaurant. You know, you have a kitchen built in. And so it, I think, I bet the, the, the turnover of space from a restaurant to another restaurant is very high. And I think that, you know, that's my big shtick, right? <laughs> that, brewery, that breweries and brew pubs uh, are more and more like that business. So there's a lot of good locations out there. And then, you know, the same kind of thing happens. You become not the latest flavor of the month and you can't keep that sort of uh, mojo going so uh, but you have a nice space that you built out you've got a whole brewery which is hard to move and yeah and uh, in, in a in it a, requires a lot of special infrastructure too within cities that's exactly right you've got it's already permitted you've already got the trench drains you've already got all this stuff if you've got a tap room yeah, electrical that's water, another thing yeah. it's like it's it's turnkey and uh, my guess is we're going to start seeing more of that actually because these these breweries are if when they fail they're probably you're probably going to be able to pick this, these, them up a little bit more cheaply than you could yeah. a few years ago. Yeah, I so. think that's that's why I wasn't thinking it's surprisingly high because I think that's going to happen more and more and more of these as as we get. I think that's going to be the nature of the business going forward for a while at least. Well, I'm not an economist, so I was I'm easily surprised about these things. Well, I am an economist, but I'm mostly just speaking out of my ass. So, <laughs> well, <laughs> we'll find out. <laughs> Okay, so uh, now we're going to turn to the main topic, which is interesting because I've agreed to be your lab rat. Yeah, so I want to talk a little bit about this thing called flavor. Which so, I just uh, the I just want to let listeners know that we have a little script here, and under the main topic, it says no peeking, no peeking. <laughs> so that's that's all I know. <laughs> yeah, I did not. I have my own notes, which uh, yeah, I'm not I'm not peeking. I don't want Patrick to see. So the In first, morning, I'll take my reading glasses off, and I really can't peek because I can't read a darn that's, thing. That's true. That's really good. Uh, so just to set this up, and then we'll get right to the guinea pig stuff, which will be fun. I think um, for you. For me <laughs> and <you>? the listener, <laughs> be fun for everybody but you. No, it's fine. I, I'm not going to spring anything on you. I'm not going to pour ketchup in a glass and then have you secretly drink that or okay, anything good. like that. Um, though if I did, it would be interesting. But let's not do that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you can tune into our other podcast, humiliating Patrick. That's right. Uh, what will Patrick drink? <laughs> um, <laughs> drink or barf? <laughs> That's right. Yeah, barf all of a sudden, or not barf. <laughs> all, of a, all of a sudden, I'm thinking this is so much more marketable. What are we? <laughs> we really made a terrible error here. Uh, Yes. Well, to set this up, uh, we often talk about uh, what beer tastes like yes. or what foods taste like, and um, we, when we, we, when we think of that concept, we think of it mainly as a as a, a construct of the mouth. Right. The the when we talk about the flavor of a beer, uh, or the flavor of anything, we're talking about what it tastes like. Mm -hmm. But it turns out uh, the what the tongue contributes to the whole uh, process of of flavor is actually one of the more limited aspects 
Uh, and there's all these other things that contribute. And to demonstrate this, we're going to have Patrick uh, try a beer, <laughs> and it will be a beer, and uh, tell us what he thinks while he has his, his nose pinched. Right. So uh, now you have to turn around. I'm going to get out a beer here. I, I will turn around. As you're doing that, I'm turning around. I'm looking away. I have a paper bag here that you can hear crumpling, <laughs> which I have stowed my secreted. I've secreted my. Uh, Th- this makes me my bottles. This makes me remember, but unfortunately, I didn't look it up, so it's going to be imperfect memory. But there's this sort of famous Skittles thing, right? Which is the Skittles apparently are all exactly the same, but they they color the, color them differently, and maybe I don't know, scent them differently or something. But ooh, ooh. well, the ears are involved now. That's right. So, Listen to your beer, as Fred. Yeah, so I'm saliv- said. So I'm now sal- my salivation, my salivatory glands are are uh, kicking into gear. Mm, beer. Mm, okay. Now beer. you have to wait, wait, wait. Do you want me to to, to close my eyes too? Or is this going to be a blind? It's going to be kind of blind. So close my eyes and pinch my nose. You don't necessarily. Well. <laughs> You haven't thought this through very well, have you? I have. I brought a special glass to oh, seal. Okay, I, perfect, excellent. So I don't have to close my eyes. There we go. So you can't. I mean, you're going to be able to see the color of the head, but don't don't study it too much. All right, now pinch your nose. Okay. Pitched. You can you can open your eyes. All right. Now now drink this, and swallow, and then and then give me the what you're going to do is drink this, swallow, and and give me the glass back, and then I'm going to ask you some questions. You can swish it around too. Now keep your nose. Yeah, keep your nose. I <laughs> keep my nose closed. All right. So, uh, tell us what kind of beer that was. That was a light lager. Okay. Mass market light lager. <laughs> uh, what What was your experience? <laughs> what flavors did you get? How did you know that? Uh, Let's see. What am I tasting? Well, I have that. Uh, can I? Can I? Unblock no, my no, no, no. <laughs> I can't go to talk with my nose. No, because what, you're going to learn about retronasal aroma here. Oh, okay, okay. Uh, yeah. So uh, what I what I tasted uh, was that kind of uh, uh, corny. All right. If you drink that and then swallow, you can corny open your malty. Nose. Huh? Uh, we have some seltzer here. So here you can drink not not oh, okay. alcoholic seltzer. All right. So I'm you can it. open your eyes too. Okay. Now you can now you can talk. All right, so now I've cleansed. All right, thank you. So you got sweetness? I got some, <clears throat> yeah, some some that malty with corny sweetness. I got that kind of bland, hoppy oil flavor. Uh, you're probably going to tell me it's like a big IPA, but and and what um, what was the sensation on the tongue? How lively was it? Was that a part of your calculation? Mm, that's a good question. It was mostly, I mean. Uh, li- define lively. Well, I don't know. Uh, you thought it was a light lager. If it had been a an English uh, ale, it would have left less liveliness. Yeah. No. I sort of it sort of hit my tongue hard, like and and I felt like I I recognized the flavor immediately. Okay. Now plug your nose skin. Okay. And now you're going to drink it, and you're going to do instead of swallowing, you can have your eyes open. Okay. Oh. <laughs> you don't have to. Then <laughs> it's the nose we care about. So now, as you're as you've got it in your mouth, now open your nose. Mm. Can you taste it now? Mm-hmm. <laughs> now you can tell us what you think it is. 
<clears throat> oh my gosh. That's different. <laughs> it always uh That's more like a like a mm, now I want to say something like a Pilsner Quell or uh so there's much more much more defined maltiness. It's really funny that you made a comment about what you had for lunch because I have a Von- <laughs> it's the Von Ebert pills I have. <laughs> ah, but that was remarkable. Yeah, so... The- so, I, so I was getting sort of that rustic... Now I'm getting... I got that rustic maltiness. I got a much more uh, sort of nuanced hop mm. instead of just kind of that bland hop. Uh, I mean, it is a light lager, but not at all. I'm, I was... I would have guessed it was a you know a Modelo or a you know a Budweiser or something. Yeah, you did a great job of of identifying that, and I think you were you were able to draw in. Uh, my sense is, I, my guess is the uh, the liveliness on the tongue was probably a, one of the indicators too, and the thinness. Yes. Um, yep. So, and then as soon as you did that experiment okay. with me, so as soon as I opened my nose, the flavor went back into the back of my mouth, right? Yeah. Kind of how you'd expect. So it's it was all in the front of my tongue at first, and then it kind of went back, and then all the nuance of the flavor came out. This is a wonderful experiment to try. We That's you're, pretty cool. <laughs> you're drinking, yeah. You everybody drinks beer a lot, and if if you just plug your nose up before you take a drink and uh-huh. let it swish around in your mouth a little bit, and then open your nose, the the sense of flavor comes rushing in in a profound way, and it's actually more. You get a, a much more potent and and vibrant sense of the flavor of the beer because of that. So that was interesting because that that was the beer that was in my mouth, so my mouth was closed, so I wasn't I wasn't uh, smelling the aroma from the beer in the cup but what i was getting was all of that aroma in the back of my mouth up up through my are you setting me up to talk about retronasal aromas well i'm about to yeah very good exactly <laughs> yeah so the the fusion of Am I the, allowed to drink more yeah okay thanks <laughs> uh if you finish that off i got another one for you i can do that uh it's good beer it is a good beer um if uh if you uh Look at the way we construct flavor. It's the fusion in the mouth. The initial, the initial uh, sensation of flavor is the, the fusion of, fl- of the taste of the buds along with the aroma. And here's an interesting thing, though. There's two kinds of aroma. When we sniff our beer, mm-hmm. we take it in um, orthonasally, that is through the front of our nose. Right. And the aroma passes immediately across our olfactory bl- bulb going in. Right. When we have something in our mouth, uh, we masticate if it's food, mm-hmm. we warm it up, right. and then it goes through the, uh, the pharynx, is that what it's called? Uh, out, the, out, out, out the back, and we uh, taste, or we, we get the sense of aroma when we exhale, right. and that's called orthonasal. Oh, that is okay. in the back, or I'm sorry, retronasal. retronasal yes. That's the back of the... Uh, uh, retro back right but so uh when we normally drink a beer we're getting both basically right you're getting both so you smell it in the front and um you're getting a slightly different scent than you are when you have it in your mouth and it warms up and it changes a bit oh that's interesting and a big part of what we when we talk about aftertaste Mm -hmm. uh, a big part of that is the aromatics still volatilized in your mouth that continue to you can you're continuing to they're going up past that olfactory bulb and you continue to taste them and that's retronasally yeah. retronasally yeah it's why so much of uh, uh, an IPA's character comes in that aftertaste as you get so much of the that retronasal aromatic right. coming up huh so uh, these are 
the two main components of flavor, but they're not the only components. But before we go on, let's let's do one more. Let's have Patrick drink one more beer. Okay, I'm gonna drain this one. You wanna? Yeah. Good. What I'm gonna do is I'm gonna use the seltzer to swish out my glass. Mainly because I brought two beers. I wasn't sure how this was gonna work. This guinea pig stuff. But this time it's interesting. This time, um, right, I'm turning around, I have a different kind of beer, and so right. uh, pay attention also to the qualities of uh, texture, density, and okay. so on in the beer. All right, All right here we go. Ah, <laughs> uh, something less romantic about a full tab. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Okay, here's this. All right. I have my nose plugged. Oh, <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> All right, should I do the same thing? Sure. Keep my nose plugged and then taste it? Yeah, and uh, you, you can either keep it plugged and tell us about it or... or uh, I'll keep it plugged first. And okay. This time, Patrick has an entirely different beer. Actually, it'd be funny if I gave you the same beer, but I'm not fooling you that way. Huh, interesting. Oh, where's the seltzer? Oh, here it is. Yeah, there. So that. So the texture to me, a little more velvety, smooth on the tongue, a little less crisp, still kind of bland, uh, a little more malty, I would say. And um, what would I also say about it? Uh, less sharp hoppiness, hmm. um, but, uh, but yeah, I, but yeah, I guess that's my, my main first impressions. You got, you got, it's, it, it's interesting how little we can say when we don't have those other yeah. pieces of data. Yeah. I mean, it's basically all just straight from my tongue. I'm just interpreting the data on the surface of my tongue. Right. Right. Yeah. And the data isn't much. It kind of gives me a sense that it's sort of a smoother. So I would expect maybe it's a bit of a heavier beer, uh, it's not quite as sharp and, and distinct on the tongue. It's a little, little, little. Uh, say, I think I used the term velvety tonight. <clears throat> Excuse me. Yeah. And I didn't have kind of that little sharp sharpness of hops that uh, I had last time. All right. Uh, do Should do I the do it? yeah. Do the do and the thing. Go. And I'll I'll pour it behind the the sack. Mmm. Mmm. Man, that's incredible. So that's a winter <laughs> beer. That's got spice. That's got... Uh, There's the reveal, the big reveal. Yeah, it's dark. So that's kind of velvety. Yeah, it's a beer I haven't had, but it's from a brewery. I love Block 15 down in Corvallis. Your, kick, your robust maplewood porter. Mm, yeah, so all of a sudden, this is a great experiment. You should try this at home because it's really, I've never done this before. It's really cool. As soon as you, it's it, and exactly as you say, it's that exhale mm -hmm. because I let go of my nose and I inhale nothing, and then you exhale, and all of a sudden the flavor just explodes. Yeah. <clears throat> so all of a sudden I got all of this spice, this sort of, I guess I don't know exactly maple wood, but yeah, this woody tannic quality and and some spice, some spice coming through. I also could taste much more the roastiness of mm -hmm. the malt. Yeah, I, I was surprised you didn't say roast. I, did, I didn't know if there was any roast because I haven't had this beer before. And I thought, well, maybe it's one of them. But no, it has a ton of roast. No, but without my nose, I couldn't really tell tell you that it was roasty. In fact- That's kind of amazing. In fact, I thought you were going to- uh, My best guess, if I had 
uh, I, I, if you would force me to guess with my nose pinched with something along the lines of a, an English bitter or an English ESP or something like that. Wow. Yeah. That is so interesting. It was just like a smooth maltiness, uh-huh. maybe even slightly biscuity, but not at all. It's a, it's, it's dense, roasty, woody, tannic, yeah, uh, a, with spice. It's a, it's a black beer. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, of course I'm trying to read this. I got the spectacles on. <laughs> yeah. Uh, this beer was uh, made with maple sur- syrup, fermented with maple syrup, and conditioned on American sugar sugar maple wood, lending notes of maple, uh, vanilla, caramel, and bourbon. Yeah. So there you go. Vanilla and bourbon is very very present. Yeah. <clears throat> uh, you mentioned this from Block 15 Corvallis. Yes. Great brewery. One of our faves. Yeah, that's that's remarkable. That's yeah. really cool. So um, because I always thought that aroma was from the, I mean, I love to pour, I, we've had this decanting discussion, right? I love to decant. Uh, I like to look at the beer and then I like to take a big sniff of the beer before I, I uh, take a drink. And I always assume that was the, that was the main part, right? That, that, that ortho nasal right. experience was what really mattered in terms of aroma, but not yeah. at all. And when we break down flavor, uh, we're going to talk that we're still in the hardware section and I'll just kind of jot through a few other things, uh, in, in terms of, of, uh, what our bodies tell us. Mm-hmm. You like to decant and actually there's a really good reason for decanting in the sense of, uh, one of the things that we use to assess flavor is our eyes. Yeah. So when you pour a beer out, um, you can see a lot of things. You can see what its color is, what it's, the head color is. Yeah. If you know anything about beer, that'll tell you something to expect. Yeah. Uh, you can actually tell how viscous it is if it pours like oil or if it pours like water. Right. You can tell how lively it is if it creates a big head or not. Um, so those things all t- give you quite a bit of data about the beer. And and <clears throat> to defend your position, which I am only loosely. This is the, is the correct position. Yes. Yeah, I'm only loosely uh, in favor of. <laughs> uh, decanting actually gives you all that data. So if you don't know a beer, it does make a lot of sense to decant it. Yeah, and you should take these two beers for example, one is very looks very much like a, a pilsner. It's light, <clears throat> straw, blonde. Yep. Beer and one is dark, dark. It's a little bit dark in the studio, so I can't tell you if it's sort of red or brown, but uh, very dark. So your mind has already decided what it's probably going to taste like, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. You are you already have this flavor profile that you expect when it hits your your tongue, and I don't know if that's good or bad. <laughs> It it just is. So we're going to get to software later, but it's definitely. So I'm one of those expecting things. you to now talk talk about decanting versus not decanting because maybe there's a, an argument to made for your mouth and nose to experience the beer without your eyes. Well, I think they're predetermining. Yeah, there's different kinds of things going on there. If you want to surprise yourself and and have a completely unexpected experience, it makes more sense not to do that. If you're a beer geek and or just somebody who really likes beer, um, you probably want to see all those things because it is part of the sensory experience, the sensual experience. So yep. there's a lot of reasons for doing it. Um, and uh, yeah, I it makes sense if it's a new beer. Uh, there's another interesting thing and I was, I, I've never, I, I, you were truly a guinea pig. I hadn't done this experiment <laughs> before, but I wanted to see if you could tell uh, the nature of viscosity uh, or if you would be able to describe that. Our, our bodies are pretty remarkable uh, in that if you taste or if you're drinking milk versus water, yeah. you can tell the difference. Yeah. So we have nerve endings that, uh, that, are, that are in our tongue, our upper palate, which is amazing, mm-hmm. uh, our cheeks for sure, and even our teeth, 
which is true if you think about ice cream versus something very hot. They have certain yeah, capacity sure. for nerves, yeah. yeah, registering things. That register, crisp, crispness, smoothness, thickness, stiffness, softness, springiness, and even uh, let us evaluate the rate of fragmentation, which is, of course, very important in terms of not choking on things right. and dying. So, uh, you know, two... Uh, so I mentioned milk and water. Uh, two French fries might be right next to each other in the fryer, and one is very crisp, and one somehow ends up soggy. Very similar things, right. and we can taste the difference between the crispness and the the sogginess, and have a very strong reaction to that. And it's all because we have specialized nerves that allow us to distinguish those two things. Yeah, yeah. Well, a lot of people, myself included, there's there's uh, certain consistencies that uh, just I find distasteful. Yeah, there's a lot of people like, who don't like certain foods because not because of the flavor, but yeah. the the consistency is too weird for them. Yeah, exactly. For me, it's like cooked zucchini or eggplant. I just I hate that. <laughs> I, too I just, squishy. Yeah, it's just like slimy and gross, and I just can't even get over it. <laughs> I like I don't mind like I love baba ganoush. I like the flavor of eggplant in other ways, but ugh, not in its native form. Not a big fan of zucchini in any real way. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So, the, uh, but yeah, I didn't. I don't know if I meant. I, I probably didn't mention it, but I could. I would tell you. I'm, uh, that it was definitely the viscosity was clear to me uh-huh. without the nose. Okay. So the the second beer was quite a bit thicker uh-huh. and, um, and more viscous. Yeah. Yeah. And then the last kind of important piece here is uh, a thing called uh, chemesthesis, mm, which is that's uh, a big word, Jeff. It is a big word. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, there, there are, we are we have chemosensory cells. Uh, again, in our mouth, they're not mm-hmm. just in our on our tongue. That allow us to hear to uh, sense qualities like heat and pain, mm-hmm. and the quality of you know when you have uh, like mint toothpaste, you know how it kind of yeah. has that tingle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's a process of our a capacity to have uh, chemosthesis, okay. to taste chemosthesis or perceive it. Um, and even and this is the other thing I was interested in, uh, the prickle of carbonation. It's a sensory thing. We have specialized cells that can determine if it something is lively and carbonated that way versus uh, more flat, and it has to do with the prickle, that prickle. Right. Um, so all of these things go into the the kind of way we detect what we're tasting, and if you're a careful taster, there they can be clues to what what's going on. To, you know the the style, the uh, process, a lot of a lot of stuff. Yeah, it's interesting because if you think about the way uh, a soda, a carbonated soda, affects your mouth, even this seltzer here, you know, it's kind of a hard a hard carbonation. It kind of mm-hmm. prickles your mouth. It's very sort of I don't know more violent in your mouth. Not obviously not violent, but you get the sense. Mm-hmm. And then this kind of beer carbonation is often very soft. Mm. You know, you feel it, but it's a very soft little uh, prick in your in your mouth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, interesting. And it does something. The prickle has this quality, in my mind, of puckering. It almost makes it feels like my mouth is puckering as response to the the the, the prickle. Whereas, yeah, a beer with flatter qualities, yeah. it doesn't respond that way. I don't yeah, one interesting thing that that uh, happens every so often, um, especially if you do things like uh, get growlers, is that you'll taste a beer when it's freshly carbonated, and then you'll taste a beer when it's flat. Right. And it's a very different sensation. Totally different. And, and as homebrewers, we've seen that too. Yeah. We've seen beers through different parts of the brewing process, and 
where carbonation is main, the main difference. <laughs> yeah, and when, and when you try to keg your own and force carbonate, it gets a little tricky. That's right. <laughs> I'm not. Turns out I'm not very good at that. That the same beer in the same keg can have many <laughs> different presentations of uh, liveliness. <laughs> but yeah, you know, flat beer is is much less enjoyable. Um, you lose that sort of pill- pillowiness in your mouth, and you also lose that kind of little prickle. Yeah. Uh, okay. So before we go any further, we should take a little break here. Because we'd like to thank Freem Family Brewers for sponsoring the Beervana podcast. As we've discussed previously, Freem is in the midst of a major expansion to a new facility in Cascade Locks on the beautiful Columbia River. The brewery has been documenting this project in a series of videos, and episode two is out now. These behind-the-scenes shorts have a home video quality and give fans a glimpse inside not just the steps, steps throughout the project, but the unexpected surprises, reactions, and deliberations that happen along the way. You can find the latest episode by visiting YouTube and typing Freem Family Brewers into the search bar. That's P-F-R-I-E-M, Family Brewers. Indeed. I watched that. It's pretty funny. Actually, I haven't watched episode two. I watched episode one. And and it says home video quality, which is sort of true, but it's also high quality. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it, I actually wrote that text. And I, by home by home video, I meant um, it is it captures a lot of... Uh, unscripted stuff yeah it's not and slick stuff. and corporate and yeah. scripted yeah it's i knew what you meant but, yeah but it's also uh, enjoyable to look at because cassie locks is a beautiful place and a beautiful uh, spot on the columbia yeah and the thing is going up and it's pretty cool and there's a lot more in the first one there was a lot of uh, josh frame the owner and and uh, maestro and this in this one there's more of gavin lord the head brewer mm-hmm. who is a uh a character himself and fun to watch. They're both, they both are, but um, yeah, it's fun to see two two different people. Cool. Well, I'll have to go check it out. So uh, the flavor thing, to come back to flavor, right. uh, we haven't talked about software yet, no, which is one of the more about hardware so far. Yeah. Oh, and there's one other thing I want to say yeah. about uh, retronasal and do- and uh, orthonasal and all that stuff. You know, we, we often talk about how, uh, and this will lead into this, this piece. We often talk about how dogs have way better uh, sense of smell than we do, right? Which is true. Okay. Uh, and if you if you think about the snout of a dog, mm-hmm. uh, the snout is actually part of the olfactory uh, instrument, right? Because the the distance between the end of the nose and the olfactory bulb is separated by this 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 snout, and when the uh, scent gets in that snout, it warms up, and warmth is always good for scent. Right. So dogs are really orthonasally focused. Mm. But they're not really very uh, retronasally focused. Mm -hmm. And it's clear, if anyone's ever seen a dog eat, that they don't (laughs) stop to consider uh, the flavor of what they're going for. Humans, on the other hand, have, you know, these tiny little noses on the end of our faces. But we have a large oral cavity. Uh So we have this capacity for great retronasal Uh uh, experience. And that leads us to this whole, uh, the, the, the software piece, which is, how we take all these things that we're getting and synthesize them into, you know, uh, an, uh, an appreciation or distaste for whatever we have. And this is where, this is kind of the ghost in the machine. And we've talked about some of this stuff. Like if you're in a really good mood and you have a beer. Right. Uh, context matters. Context matters hugely. Yeah. Like that can be the best beer you ever had because yeah. you're in such a great mood and right. it's exactly the right time. Conversely, if you're depressed and you have a beer, it's, you know, it's not going to help. It's right. just, just, you're not going to like that beer very well. Um, if you're full or hungry, those will really change the perception of the flavor. Right. Like if you're full, every beer kind of like, ugh, it's right. too much, can't do it. Right. 
if you're hungry, it just is amazing. Uh, so those those predispositions kind of uh, ca- cast this this sense over everything that we're taking in from the hardware and change it potentially. Uh, then there are the things you talked about, uh, not wanting to prejudice yourself by the the way a beer looks. Mm-hmm. But there are many. We bring so many prejudice, prejudices into the beer drinking process, whether we like or dislike the brewery. Right. Like so many people who taste a famous brewery's beer right. are super predisposed to already like it, right. and they think it tastes amazing. And if you put that same beer in a different bottle from a brewery they didn't like, they would not like it as well. Or no matter what kind of beer Anheuser-Busch makes, even right. if they made this amazing, you know, <laughs> hazy IPA, you wouldn't like it just that, because you knew where it came from. That's exactly right. Yeah. So there's all that stuff. Um, branding, label design, the color of the beer, the haziness. Haziness is a big thing right now. Yeah. So much of of the entire uh, beer industry, craft beer industry, is being driven by a visual component of the beer, yeah. which is a proxy for the, the flavors. Yeah. yeah, it's really interesting. Um, so all of that goes in. So then what happens is the brain takes all this stuff in and uh, kicks out an impression of what that flavor is based on all of these factors. They right. all contribute to the what we consider flavor. And if you're in a bad mood and you have a beer and you're in a good mood, you have a beer, that flavor, which is not at this point any remote way objective, uh, right. it's going to taste different. Right. Uh, and I think uh, there are, you can get into some subtle stuff. There's this wonderful book called uh, Gast biology or something like that, gastro something, mm-hmm. by a guy named Shepard. And this book, he's a he's a neurobiologist, and it eventually just descends into kind of <laughs> philosophy at the end because um, <laughs> he, he starts talking about how uh, the way that we uh, understand the world is through language. Right. And the way we talk about food is filtered through language. The way we describe food is always by metaphor. We don't actually have words for every specific flavor. Right. We describe uh, flavors with other flavors. Right. So this tastes like a mint or this tastes like citrus. Right. In beer, you see so much of that. So it becomes this metaphoric language, which mm-hmm. further distances us from the direct experience. Now we've, now we've introduced the language into the whole experience. Right. Which is fascinating. And, and, and language is interesting because not only what we use to communicate to others, but it's how we communicate with ourselves as well. So if you're sitting there and just right. having an internal dialogue about, ooh, this beer, I like this beer. What do I like about it? Well, it's kind of kind of tastes like mandarins or something like that. Yeah. Right? <laughs> it's the same kind of thing. So it's it's how we it's how we uh, it's how we think. I mean yeah. Language is what we use to think as well. Totally. And finally, we just have the biggest brains on the planet and uh so our processing power to think about things like flavor is much, much bigger, and we spend a huge amount of time doing it. And if right. you look at our culture and our the, the history of our species, flavor is enormously important. We have so much of our lives revolve around flavor. Uh, and so it's not surprising that even though our hardware may not be as sophisticated as some other animals, mm-hmm. uh, our software and the way we process and think about the flavors that we're, that we're bringing into our bodies uh, is much, much, much more sophisticated. So we have uh, this orientation towards flavor that is different than most other animals. We care about the subjective qualities that please us in a way that other animals don't. Mm-hmm. Flavor in, in, in many other species is just a proxy for safe or unsafe. Right, exactly, yeah. Spoiled so, or <laughs> right. <laughs> poisonous or not. So, so that's uh, kind of the background, and I hope we can get some uh, chefs or food people in here to talk to us about 
increasing all of this bacchanalia of flavor by putting beer next to food and and seeing what that's like because i don't know anything about that yeah and yeah and 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 fortunately that's become a thing now for years and years and years there's only wine and food totally uh but now people are actually thinking more and it's not just and the other thing i would say is for a long time there was this you'd go to a brew pub and they say it pairs well with this or that and and there's clearly no thought right in there at all like yeah. why it doesn't make any sense what you've just said it was like that old white wine and fish thing it was yeah. pretty basic yeah so uh uh yeah that would be a, a fascinating podcast you should get on that i'm getting on that <laughs> I, i've already i've already the, the wheels are in motion okay good all right well we should probably turn now to our mailbag let's do it we got mail we thanks got, folks we got mail yeah thanks all right uh, should i start i guess i should start so Alist- alistair scriven well, i feel like we've heard f- before from alistair we have okay good yeah, and he's got that Dickensian name, so it's hard a, to forget. It's a memorable name. Yeah, uh, He's from Portland, and uh, he writes, Recently I have been struck by the number of small Portland breweries who are growing by opening new tap rooms in and around our area. Ten plus years ago, breweries seemed to grow in place. Now gigantic, great notion, and level. Yeah, finally something in my neighborhood. Oh, okay, I know where you live. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> right. Have all recently announced new outposts, uh, joining the likes of Ex Novo, Breakside, Von Ebert, Stormbreaker, to name a few, all having multiple locations in our metro area. Perhaps higher profit margin than trying to compete for retail shelf space and allow brewers to get to that Goldilocks size more effectively. Yeah, that so, seems right. Yeah, I mean, you've basically taken the words out of my mouth so <laughs> economies of scale matter so if you can you can help grow uh, that's going to lower the average cost of your beer uh i also think uh, we it's definitely true that if you can sell it directly to consumers you cut out a lot of the uh middle middleman expenses yep you can make a lot more money so it, you make a lot more money when you sell it directly to consumers so that's certainly true what i think is interesting and this was particularly true when we went up to seattle and seattle is mostly a taproom model uh, there's not a whole lot of food being served by most of these breweries. Uh, but in Portland, you expect food. And I think what we're seeing now is this sort of new model that people are accepting, uh, the tap room. Um, and maybe there's just a minimal food or you know a food cart across the street or things like that. So I right. think that's, that's part of the culture shift. Yeah, I think that's right. And uh, it, it's also in a world in which uh, the prospects of getting very big are diminishing. Yes. It's a way to have a more stable uh, small business than than just hoping to grow. Yeah, and I think that's becoming more and more of a new paradigm. And I mean, we talked about that Goldilocks, you know, the sort of 20 to 30,000 barrel a year uh, zone, which allows you to be reasonably efficient, but also uh, manageable. Yeah. And so I think that sort of finding finding your your sweet spot and not this idea that you're just going to grow and to become a gigantic brewery anymore has is, is become the new norm because it's not working for a lot of places. And a uh, thing that I was thinking of when I read Alistair's uh, email is there's um, – we, we see this in another way too. Uh, it's true that Portland-based breweries are opening second locations, but also there are a number of breweries from other parts of the state who have opened tap rooms in Portland yes. uh, as a way of coming into the big city. So, uh, yeah. so many. Uh, uh, the one near me is Double Mountain. Double Mountain. Um, from from uh, Hood River, just like Freem Family Brewers. <laughs> That's right. If you go downtown, it's amazing. You've got Backwoods, which is a Washington-based brewery. You've yep. got Deschutes, which is Ben-based brewery. You've got yep. Ten Barrel, which is Ben-based brewery. You've got Rogue, which is a Newport-based brewery. It's like there's just a lot of them downtown, and um, they're kind of all over the city. So it's interesting that- uh, Yeah, and what's interesting about downtown is there's very few Portland-based breweries that are actually downtown. So. That's right. Yeah, uh, Von Ebert is, is the last one, I yeah. think. So, uh, and we're drinking their pills. Yeah. So that's cool. And it's good pills. Good job. 
All right, next one. All right, the next one comes from uh, JG in PDX. Uh, and he writes, uh, I has, so apparently we talked about separating uh, six-pack containers we did. from their- uh, At a time in the past, we talked about how this was used to be a Portland thing, which you could always just grab bottles out of a six-pack. Yeah. And it was no big deal, and everybody did it, and it was just a, a normal thing. And I think I mentioned that I saw somewhere where there was the store had put a sign up saying, please don't break up six packs. And you probably whinged about that. And I said, well, Portland's changing. Yeah. yeah. So here's his response. So here's his response. As someone who has worked in beer retail for a number of years, I wanted to share some insights on this from our side. Broken six packs are actually a huge pain for us. I think a lot of people will just take a single, who take a single, presume that the other five will sell just the same. But here's the thing. They almost never do. Those five beers more often than not sit on the shelf until they expire and then we dump them out. The end. <laughs> also, if you break that last six pack, you just screwed the next person because five singles cost more than uh, the six pack. And he actually went into a kind of a longer description of this. The right. thing is uh, a, a single beer costs more than a six pack price. Yeah. So once you break that up, then everything is now on singles pricing. Yeah, nonlinear pricing for the right. econ majors and so, there you go. Uh, so consumers could A, pay the six-pack price and only get five, B, pay for five singles and pay more than they would have for six, or C, leave it on the shelf and pick something else, which is what they actually do. Yeah. So that was an interesting insight about how all of that works. Yeah. Yeah, and it used to – so the one thing – you know, I, it was kind of nice, especially when you were really on a tight budget like a student – but every once in a while, I'd grab a six pack of something and I'd take it home, and then I'd realize that one or two had been switched out. Oh yeah, and they'd be like, "Oh, I know, bastards." Yeah. <laughs> and sometimes from the same brewery, so you ended up usually from the same brewery, right, so you, you couldn't want, tell because like right. the you next, look at the crowns, the necks look the same, yeah. the crowns look the same, and then you like, "Oh man." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, with with uh, cans is much more difficult because I you can really see what they what you're buying there. Yeah, and nowadays, I mean, uh, I think that was one of the things that I noticed with the sign because uh, the 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 craft six packs that have that little plastic, uh, I don't even know what you, how you describe it. They keep the cans together, so it's not like the little strap that you used to have. Right. The the but whatever. It's a little plastic topper thing, so you can pull them off the bottom uh, if you want. You could reassemble them. You could reassemble, reassemble them. You can put them back together. It's not that hard, but. Uh, I think more and more you're seeing breweries use the little box, the little six pack box of yeah. cans. Yeah. And I'm seeing more and more places just have a whole bunch of uh, containers for singles too. So they, they break them down. Right. You can buy them in six packs or they break them down for you. Yeah. Which is funny because that creates this entire secondary area, which is, <laughs> which is a repeat of the stuff you've got over here. Right. And, uh, and, and we've seen a move away from, uh, uh, 22s, and one of the big complaints was, oh, I got to have all this shelf space for all these 22s, and now we're seeing it for cans. So, yeah, yeah it's interesting. Yeah. So, I appreciate the move to boxes. I think, I, well, I don't know, but my assumption is that's more environmentally sustainable because, yeah, I think so. Paper pulp is not. It's also a great opportunity for branding. I, every time I see Hazy Little Thing, it's got such great branding, and that, that cool little box, I think, oh, I should buy that. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> yeah. that's, you're, keeping, you're keeping Sierra Nevada alive. Well, you know, I, I often don't because there's so many other beers to buy, but I, but I have the impulse. So. But Hazy Little Thing is always my example when I talk about economies of scale and, yeah. and, and the pressure of the beer industry. So here's the ballast point example, which right. is that Sierra Nevada can produce what is a really good hazy you know, up on par with most that you'll find, but at a much more competitive price point. Yeah. So what are you going to buy when you get there? Totally. <laughs> and to our tasting thing, 
those things like that box, I, I'm already salivating when I see it, which yeah. predisposes me to like whatever's in the can. And if it was a, an out of code or off, off batch, I probably, my brain would just paper over that and I'd think, oh, I love hazy little thing. <laughs> so I want to say thank you, JG. Those kinds of comments are great. And uh, everybody else, if you have just interesting, you know, a lot of you work in the industry, let us know. Those are fascinating I, insights. Yeah, I love industry insider comments because, as I say, most of what I talk about is just stuff that I guess based on the knowledge I have of economics, but poor knowledge I have of the industry itself. So I, right. love, I love to know more and be corrected. So totally, let me know. All right. Well, I guess we're done. There's no Sherpa this week. Um, yeah, I dropped the ball. Yeah, but we could Sherpa our two we, our two tasters here. Just saying. Ball farsh parhe. Oh, nice little Hindi. Yeah. Okay, uh, that dates back to our time in India together. Yes. All right, so that's pigeon Hindi for all of you out there. <laughs> all right, beer hot mehe. Uh, is block 15. Wait, are you going to do the out, the outro before we... Well, I'm doing the Sherpa first. Oh, you're Sherpaing. Okay, yeah, good I'm job. saying let's turn these into Sherpas. Okay, good call. So Sorry. the two beers that we tasted today were the Von Ebert Pils, German-style Pilsner, Von Ebert Brewing from Portland, Oregon, and block 15 from Corvallis, Oregon there. I guess it's just called Maple that appears. Yeah. But it's a robust maple wood porter. They're maple porter. So uh, those are both uh, good beers. Yeah. And yeah, I this... Would, this I, I will say I didn't talk too much about this. The Block Fifteen is uh, lighter bodied. Uh, it has a roastiness and it has a sweetness. It's got real nice balance. So I think anybody who uh, is is anxious about overly sweet beers or anxious about overly bitter beers or you know uh, roasty beers will find something to like in this. And, so what, and like I called beers. it I called it winter beer because I think it is a really nice winter warmer. Absolutely, it's got a decent amount of alcohol. It'll keep you toasty. <laughs> Agreed. All right, a few words going out. Once again, we want to extend a hearty thank you to Freem Family Brewers for sponsoring this episode of the Beer Vana Podcast. You can find them in Hood River, Oregon, and at freembeer.com. That's P-F-R-I-E-M-B-E-R.com. Well done. Yeah, thank you. All right, so please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, on SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast. Don't forget to rate us. Please. Five stars, please. That helps listeners find the show. Uh, recommend us to friends. We'd love to hear from you, so please send your questions and comments to jeff at beervonablog.com or on Twitter at beervonapod. Jeff blogs at the Beervana blog and tweets at at beervana. And Patrick tweets at beernomics. All right. So I have the Vonnie Bird pills and you have the maple. I do. All right. Cheers, Jeff. Cheers, Patrick. <laughs>